Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash portland So this is kind of a special episode of the podcast. We have Sean Scorvo, who is the Democratic candidate for House District 23. Is that correct? Correct. Running against Mike Nearman out here in Bell Fountain, Oregon. Correct. And so we are currently outside his in his house or his uh, his property out here in uh, rural Oregon on a goat farm. We're actually outside you can get to see the goats behind us. We're actually videotaping this as well if you're watching on uh, on the video. Goats, dogs, outside, socially distanced. So, Sean, why don't we start out, um, listeners know who I am, why don't you just give a, a start with a kind of two-minute bio of who you are and how you ended up running for this seat. All right, yeah. So, uh, thanks for the intro. And um, My name's uh, Sean Scorpo, as you already noted, uh, retired physician, uh, currently uh, running an internet uh, service company, uh, primarily focused on uh, Portland and Reno. Uh, decided to run in this district um, primarily because uh, I was uh, pretty upset that uh, our representative walked out. This was the uh, second session in a row uh, that that had occurred, uh, and I figured that um, our district deserved better representation. I uh, decided to throw my hat in the ring, and of course, two weeks later, COVID hits, and we don't really know where that's going to take us, so it's uh, it's been an adventure, uh, but glad I've done it thus far. So uh, that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. Excellent. How about you? Yeah, so uh, running for House District 36, which is up in Portland. So similar idea where you are a Democrat running in a very Republican district. I'm a Republican running in a very Democratic district. I was born and raised in Portland, or born and raised in Oregon. I was born in Portland, moved to Bend when I was seven, graduated from high school there, uh, went to Corbin University to get my undergrad in math and computer science, joined the Army, spent five years on active duty in the 10th Mountain Division, deployed a couple times with them, and... Then came back to Oregon, got an MBA from the University of Oregon, joined the Oregon National Guard while I was doing that, deployed a third time with the Oregon National Guard. Then I went to work for Intel as a financial analyst. And I did that for four and a half years before getting involved in politics. So I started getting involved around about the 2016 timeframe. Um, I have been a Republican since I've been able to vote, but it's always been just kind of like I'd, I'd vote and then I would get on with my life. It wasn't until 2016 when we nominated Donald Trump to represent the party that I it something flipped in me. I can't stand that we nominated Donald, Donald Trump. I mean, just the way the guy is, can't stand him. Uh, so that is so I decided I had a, a choice to make. I could either change my party, I could just get out of politics in general, just kind of take a step back and not get involved, or you know I could get more involved and see if I could make my one little voice louder and so maybe we can prevent the party from nominating somebody like donald trump in the future 
So obviously this is what I chose. I started getting involved in the Multnomah County Republican Party. Through that, I got uh, involved with Lori Travis Dreamer and her campaign up in Happy Valley area. Knocked doors for her. I knocked doors for Newt Bueller uh, for his gubernatorial campaign. Through that, I met Nick Perlosky, who's the normal uh, co-host of this show. And we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half. And of course, uh, you know, now I'm a candidate for state rep up mm-hmm. in Southwest Portland. So, so how did you, how'd you find me? Uh, yeah. So this, that was a funny story. I was on Reddit and a subreddit called Oregon Politics and your significant other had made a comment on, I, I don't even remember the, the topic of conversation, but it was, but she mentioned that her, that her, uh, partner was running against Mike Nierman. And so I know Mike Nierman. I wouldn't say we're like friends, but you know, we, we know each other. And I was like, Oh, it'd be interesting to talk to this guy because he's running in a very rural district as a Democrat. And so I, I messaged her and she, um, put us in touch. And so we got to emailing and decided that we both kind of had the idea of why don't we record a conversation? And so it just kind of worked out. Here we are recording a conversation. You know, I have to say that, uh, you know, in your reach out and certainly in the correspondence that we had, uh, subsequent to that, what I saw was a candidate that was in a very similar circumstance, opposite side of the political spectrum, uh, but maybe not so opposite. You know, I, I do think that there was, there was certainly a, a measure of um, kind of middle-of-the-road pragmatism that you have to tack to, I have to tack to. Mm-hmm. And the impression that I've gotten is it's genuine from you. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and kind of seeing where it goes. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting you mentioned the walkout. We don't need to talk too much about this because I think this is probably one of the places that we probably differ. So I definitely believe in climate change, definitely that believe that climate change is a thing that we need to tackle as a state, as a nation, as a, as a world. I see cap and trade as not a solution to cap to climate change, but as a way to add another bureaucratic layer, which then just increases the size and scope of the government. Mm -hmm. And so when the Republicans walked out to prevent a vote on climate, on, uh, not on climate change, on cap and trade, I supported it because, and, and again, this is probably from my right wing bias, but I've spoken with legislators i've spoken with uh, people who are intimately involved in that and to hear their story they were not being listened to they they, their perspective is tina kotek and the democrats were just steamrolling this thing through it was not thoroughly vetted it was just we need to push this through and there was no talk of compromise there's no talk of of anything and so they felt like they had no other choice but to walk out so so i would counter that with uh and believe it or not i would not have voted for that either I agree that it was a bureaucratic nightmare. You know, they had a number of goals uh, that were put forth that uh, then were going to get pushed to the various agencies to figure out how to make it happen. Uh, that's a huge gray zone. Uh, and especially in this state where the amount of corporate impact money per capita uh, that goes into this state is higher than any other state in the nation. It is a corrupt uh, system. And you can actually walk uh, down people's voting record and see um, how at times with particular donations. Um, and I saw that actually unfolding as that, uh, cap and trade bill was coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scared me, you know, that's a huge gray zone that can be taken advantage of and not to the advantage of Oregonians and certainly not to the, um, um, the benefit of actually achieving the cap and trade goals. So I would not have voted for that. The thing that got me as far as the walkout was concerned was, uh, there was really not even a willingness to put forth another plan. I did not hear another plan from the political right. Uh, and so I've actually proposed one that I think is uh, going to better meet our goals uh, and also um, 
would actually earn money for the state uh, and uh, uh, create jobs. And it didn't take a lot to put it together. You know, it was a few months of going through that. Hmm. That's what I expect of our legislators. And that's not what I saw. So it's one thing to say, no one's listening to me. Uh, it's quite another to come forth with a plan. And I would have expected that. And I didn't see it. Uh, and the unfortunate thing is there was a lot of business that's been undone or not done, I should say, over the last two sessions um, that we're feeling now uh, to the detriment of the state. So it is still pretty upsetting to me, but I agree. Cap and trade, not way to go. Let's see. One of the other things we talked about via email before this was uh, was PERS. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so again, I'm going to show my like right-wing bias here, but I see the influence of the public employee unions in this. And so again, from a right-wing bias, public employee unions give money to Democrats. Democrats then vote for things to increase the size and scope of the government. When you increase the size and scope of the government, you add more employees, state employees. More state employees means more revenue to the state employee unions and the cycle continues. So there's this kind of incestuous cycle of money going on there. And I see PERS as one of those things where there's a problem. There's a $27 billion problem. And getting like just slashing PERS is not the right answer. But also burying your head in the sand and pretending it doesn't exist is also not the answer. And so, again, yeah. right, right-wing bias. Uh, we got some dogs in the background. I don't know if you can hear on the podcast. Uh, right-wing bias is that this is influenced from those outside, outside money um, organizations that are preventing the preventing the legislature from making the changes that need to be made in order to benefit the majority of Oregonians. So, so you know, recently, uh, so in 2019, Senate Bill 1049 was passed. Uh-huh. Uh, it was meant to start to um, build up the PERS reserves, uh, you know, the unfunded um, um, mandate that we've got uh, attached to PERS. The, uh, I would not have voted for that, uh, even though it is a step in the right direction. But it, it's, it's kind of an interesting reason why I would not have voted for it. So... If you go back historically into how we got into the mess with PERS, this has gone through a number of uh, different legislatures, sometimes Republican-controlled, sometimes Mm -hmm. Democratic-controlled. And so there's always been a great deal of horse trading uh, to be able to, you know, cinch down the next contract. And what I saw was, you know, people were consistently passing the buck. We're going to, you know, maybe pay a little bit less per hour. It's going to come out of benefits. And, you know, that was the Faustian bargain. Uh, that people placed on that. And that has been on both sides of the aisle. To now get to the point where we realize that you can't just attach PERS to uh, the market and expect that it's going to be stable. You know, we've gone now through two recessions, uh, substantial ones that have pretty much dug us a significant hole. Then we get um, the uh, the legislature pushing for, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court, the Oregon Supreme Court to decide on this and say, you know what, we need to walk this back. It's just not doable. Well, we have a contract with these people. Um, and I think it's pretty uh, disingenuous of uh, the state to stand back and say, well, we need to change the rules. Senate Bill 1049 did the same thing, uh, where this one was approved uh, by the Oregon Supreme Court in August. Uh, but I find it similarly disingenuous to set one set of rules and then walk it back when you say, oh, that just doesn't work for us. So my concern is that the state has basically made themselves uh, an untrustable negotiating partner. And going forward, that is not going to um, put us in a good position 
uh, for future contract negotiations. So in my estimation, PERS reform has been a mess of, you know, both sides uh, playing into it. Then I do agree that we've had a democratic administration repeatedly try and get out from underneath that. And I don't really, I, I don't like that either uh, from the democratic party. So my proposal with regards to PERS is I think that we actually need to change the way that we fund uh, the state government. Right now, going back to your comment about um, the uh, the cap and trade bill, with all of these agencies, they've got fees, they've got uh, a number of different uh, revenue generating models that are, they're opaque. Uh, you don't really know where the money goes. You don't know how it's spent. You don't know what the return on investment is for the state. Um, and actually going back to the interview you did with Alan Alley, uh, I found that really um, eye-opening. I met with him, uh, not really met with him personally, but he was part of a roundtable that I attended about 10 years ago. And he said during his time as uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Kulingoski, when he walked into um, one of his first meetings, he asked these um, the heads of the various agencies for their business plan. Obviously, he's a businessman. You know, that's, that's the language he speaks. Uh, and I think I would have done the same thing. Uh, not one of them could give it. Not one of them could generate uh, any sort of uh, paperwork that substantiated their value to the state. And he was dumbfounded. Uh, I was dumbfounded. That, I think, would be the first step uh, in any sort of legislation that I would propose and just say, we want to see your business plan. Now, we're going to set up a system where we'll help you develop one, but I want to see what the return on investment is. I want to see where all the revenue is. I want to see what every plan uh, that you have in place, what benefit it brings to the state. Uh, and then all things are on the table. Those funds would then go into uh, the general fund uh, eventually. And once you do that, every business that I've ever been involved with, once people are really looking at it from a pragmatic point of view, you will find money to be saved. Mm-hmm. Easily 5%. Uh, businesses I've been involved with, I'm talking 20 30%. I do not see why the state of Oregon cannot follow a similar path. That's where our PERS reform comes. Doing bills like 1049, Senate Bill 1049, um, we're just simply exacerbating the problem. And now we're not trustable uh, sure. in any negotiation. That's an interesting point. And I think that that definitely needs to be done. I would say this is one of the things that I have put forward in my candidacy of, because I have an MBA. I worked in corporate America. Now I'm a small business owner. Um, we got my, got my swag on for my, I did see that, my yeah. garage door business. <laughs> um, but being able to look at those business plans and pick them apart. I think is a skill that we're lacking in the legislature right now. Um, you know, you have a lot of lawyers, you have a lot of bureaucrats, you have a lot of people who've been doing, I mean, Kate Brown's a good example where she graduated from law school at 27, got elected to the legislature and has been in public life ever since for the last 25 years. And, you know, I'm sure she's a, she's a great bureaucrat, but like it's just disconnected from, from what 99% of the state is going through. Maybe not 99%. I don't know, but you know, most, most people have to, turn a profit, have to just be involved in the community. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, you need those type of people. But I think we end up with too many of those people and not enough people with real world experience, timely real world experience. So, but I think you're absolutely right. This is another, I'm not sure if it was on the Alan Alley episode or a different one where they're talking about every year, each of these agencies will come asking for more money Mm -hmm. and you know, you see, it might have, yeah, I think it probably was the same one where yep. they'll, they'll come in and say it's 20 or 30% higher just to maintain the service level. And well, in the corporate world, you have to justify that. You Absolutely. say, 
okay, well, you did this for a million dollars this year. Why do you need 1.3? Tell me where that other 0.3 million is going to. And then you have to justify it. And most of the time you can't. And that ends up getting cut. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're not doing that at, at the state level means that we're not being good stewards of taxpayer money. And that's probably my biggest thing is we have one of the highest budgets per capita in the country here in Oregon. I do not believe that we have the best service per capita in the country. So it's like we have the money going into the state, but it's not being used appropriately. There's a lot of waste. There's a lot. I mean, and I, I don't haven't dug into the budget. I don't know exactly where that waste is going. But just by comparing us to other states in the country, you can tell we're wasting a lot of money on stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, right wing perspective, I think a strong Republican Party helps that because it puts some checks and balances on the democratic trifecta that we have in, in the state. And so I think that, so I support Republicans at the state level because I think we need, we need some pushback on that. And I, I think that, um, I think that that is, is going to help or some, I mean, even someone like you who has that experience can come in or, I mean, I guess I wasn't going to say this, but even my, my opponent, Lisa Reynolds has talked about being better stewards of taxpayer money and, so she's not backed by the unions, which I or not. I, mean, I think they endorsed her, but she they were not her first pick, and so or she was not their first pick. And so I think she's got a, another good opportunity to go into the state legislature and, you know, shine some light on some things that p- some people don't want light shined on. You know, uh, to her credit and to uh, to my potential detriment, should I win? Um, you know, some of these things that we're talking about um, are going to be difficult to push through. I mean, there will be resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, dirty little secret. Uh, when I was younger, I voted Republican. You know, I started off as Republican, <laughs> but uh, I There's became nothing wrong with that. Yeah, well, I nothing became. Wrong with that. I did become a little disenchanted <laughs> as the years went on, but uh, uh, I mean, I agree that there does need to be a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long as it's not a a social conservative agenda that's getting pushed, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, the pragmatism and the business uh, approach is valuable. It's necessary. It, that check has to be there, and in fact, in your uh, your podcast uh, interview with uh, Alan, there was one really specific statement in that one that um, that struck me, and that was when he was describing when he launched his semiconductor business. You know, he saved the money with his guys, uh, and they went out. He personally guaranteed uh, his business. Uh, I did something similar. You know, I put my home yeah. on the line, mm-hmm. um, and that's uh, it's not something that I think that a, a career bureaucrat uh, can wrap their head around. In fact, that's what he was saying. That you know, they were shocked. They couldn't understand how he had done that. Uh, why he had done that, but that's when you're when you're approaching business uh, and you really need to know your numbers and it's your house on the line. You follow through, and I see uh, a representative in a way. It's their house on the line, so they had better be willing to follow through. Uh, and if you don't have that kind of perspective to understand how to do that uh, and when to do that, you're probably not a very good legislator. So yeah, I agree. There is there definitely has to be a balance. That balance, from my perspective, does not include the current form of the Republican Party, at least on a national level. Um, but yeah, that balance has to be that. Yeah. I've thought about switching registration before. Really? I mean, well, I mean, this is, again, even in 2016, I thought, you know, well, this is, this is the party of Donald Trump. Is this a party that I want to be a part of? And I've looked at both party platforms. We've done podcasts on both party platforms. And... I find that I'm about 70% Republican, about 30% Democrat. And so the, the 30% that I am not Republican is all that social stuff that you're talking about. Um, 
And this is coming from a very conservative Christian upbringing, but all of the stuff that any, basically the entire family values plank that talks about abortion and about LBG, LGBT issues and all that. I just, I would just soon throw that whole thing out. But I think, so one of my goals here is to kind of pull the party away from that socially conservative and focus more on uh, the, the financial side, the fiscal conservatism where you're just, and I don't mean fiscal conservative and just like hack and slash, but fiscal conservative in make sure your money's being used in the best places and treat taxpayer money like it is your money and not just some like, ethereal piggy bank to be spent wherever you feel like. Like you personally guaranteed your... Yeah. Like you personally guaranteed your house. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that's kind of what I what I want. So I, I tend to be a little bit more small L libertarian in the sense of I don't care who you marry. I don't care who you sleep with, you know. Go ahead and have an abortion. Go ahead and own guns. But let's talk about the fiscal stuff and rein it all in. So that the the we one of the things that Christine Drazen, House Minority Leader, said on the podcast that I thought was really interesting is you put government in a box and you say everything in this box is the scope of the government. Everything outside this box is the scope of somebody else, whether it's the individual or or charities or you know fill in the blank. And so what that allows you to do is focus on the things in that box and make them the best you possibly can. But when that box turns into an amoeba, you are now trying to do too much for too many people. And when you do that, you end up doing nothing for anybody. So I thought that was a really good analogy of, of the way that I kind of see government and, you know, I think fiscal conservatives see government. But do you see the Republican Party being able to move off of the, the social conservative agenda? We'll see. So this is kind of, we, we were mentioning before the podcast, and I didn't want to talk about it before we got on air, but it kind of depends on, that, that's kind of the plan of what I, my longer term plan is to see if we can, if we can do that. So it depends on how I do in this election. Uh, the last Republican to run in this district, in my district, was in 2012, and he got 17% of the vote. So I am running on a hard, never Trump, pro good governance, but leave out all of the social conservative stuff. It's in my voters pamphlet statement. I'm running an ad on Facebook, um, pushing those, those agendas. And if I can pull in enough of the, the in, independents or non, non-affiliated or maybe even a few right leaning Democrats and get up to, you know, 20, 25, 30% of the vote. Now I have a platform that I can go back to the, to the Republican party. Also, I mean, we have this podcast where, you know, we're ta- I building my network and building my sphere of influence that if I can significantly outperform in this election, then I have a voice to go back to the party and say, Hey, look, do you guys want to win elections? Do you want to strengthen the party? You got to dump all this, all this social stuff. You know, you can keep believing that in your personal life. That's fine. That's what you choose to do. But as long as it's part of the platform, as long as this is what our, our constituents or our, our candidates are sticking to, we're not going to continue. Like this is the status quo. You know, if I can outperform at Multnomah County with a socially progressive but fiscally conservative platform, and I, I don't expect to win. Um, this the the registration disadvantage in my district is six to one, six Democrats for every Republican. So, like, getting fifty percent plus one is is so far out of reach that <laughs> that's not even not even like in my in my radar right now. But if I get thirty percent, then then it gives me a platform to to try to make a change it's a significant win yeah so i mean who knows i'm probably going to get 18 and then you know re figure out what to do from there but 
you know, even 18, I think, in the current political environment would be significant for you. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, it's just maybe a little bit of blasphemy for, for my listeners, but the, uh, I'm rooting for you because I do think Thanks. that that needs to happen uh, if we're going to cure any of these, um, you know, these uh, these issues that are currently, you know, just burdening us. The social conservative uh, versus, you know, the left wing, you know, libertarian or liberal uh, approach is it is going to be a constant battle unless we start to find at least a truce and move back to what you're saying, which is, um, you know, government is about setting the rules, creating that box letting everyone know, you know, what the parameters are and you know, then go forth and prosper within those parameters. And if they need to change them, they do it electorally. Yep. Um, but right now that amoeba is, it's big. It has spilled out of that box and it is far reaching. Um, and I'm not actually sure that uh, the Democratic caucus uh, is, is going to be open to moving off of some of these issues because it's currently used as a bludgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got their own system of fundraising off of the Mike Neermans of the world. There's a reason that these districts were gerrymandered the way that we were. Um, they are meant to raise money for, you know, the Democrats. And that is another problem where it's a cynical back and forth game that neither party seems to really be open to solving right now. Yeah. They've each got an agenda attached to the, the status quo. And I think what we have to do as a party, as a Republican party, is... I, again, I think it has to do with the platform. I think it has to do with uh, getting moderates into positions of power because then you can you can bring more moderates into the party and you can start... Because there's going to be a certain portion of the electorate who just will not go with this. Like we've got these... Th- this is the, the disadvantage of having a weak party is that anybody who's going to... will basically accept anybody who's willing to vote, yeah. vote Republican, which is frustrating. And so we start bringing in these sort of extremist single issue groups and what that does for the moderates is they start jumping ship they either register independent or they i i am a member of a of a republican group in portland and they lose members left and right um either because of trump or because of the way that the party's moving and these these guys have the same thought that i did is like i don't know if i can be associated with this anymore even though i believe all those you know fiscally conservative values yeah. so if we can Again, get some moderate leadership in with a, to get a moderate following to start voting in county party elections and then in Oregon Republican Party elections. I think that's how you start changing things and you start changing the view of the party away from, you know, sort of the extreme right to a more moderate party. Because if you look at Oregon, Oregon as a whole is not the, the majority of Port- of Oregon is not ideologically conservative and so the the fact that the republican party is dominated by the ideologically conservative people means it's not representative of the state which also means that we don't win elections and we end up with in the super minority so you know the actually you're touching on there was one of the questions you also asked in that uh uh, that alan alley uh, uh podcast or actually he asked of you i think who's your favorite republican yeah, in the state, uh, in state <laughs> politics, and you know, as I was listening to that, I was like, you know, mine would be Tom McCall. Yeah, um, and I think that to your point, um, he was not an ideologue. Uh, he straddled, uh, I think, every aspect of what we're talking about in this conversation, uh, and he did a tremendous amount of good for the state. Um, Tom McCall, Vicatia, even Bob Packwood, you Bob know, Packwood, yeah, you know, moderate yeah. Republicans, yeah. You know, Vicatia, I think there were some. There were some indications that we were starting to move off of, um, 
it's a very long story. I've kind of reviewed his his uh, legislative history or uh, governance history as well. But I think we were starting to move that direction with Vicatia. Uh, I think we moved uh, back uh, a little bit, but then you know, obviously, you know, we we started going you know, Roberts, Kitzhaber, uh, so that die was set. But the um, uh, the Tom McCall era, where it was non-ideological, we got a lot done, uh, and that's what I'm I'm hoping we can you know, achieve in the state again. I do think that it's possible, um, but only if we can start to deconstruct. I think some of the gerrymandering, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, create uh, a system where it's not you're not incentivized to go further to the left or further to the right, and that's what we have now. We are picking ideologues. Uh, over pragmatists when you have these yeah when you have these very red or very blue districts you yeah the primary ends up being who is the most extreme no one tries to the the fewer purple districts there are it's a very good point i was a big fan of ip57 the uh, independent redistricting council it's um it's really unfortunate that they couldn't get the i mean covid happened and all of a sudden you can't go collect signatures and so what are you going to do yeah um what was it was interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, talk over you there, but uh, one of the things that uh, came up as I was pushing for that as well was, and this I think is just a really good case in point about how ideological we become. Um, the most pushback I got was from the left saying, "We won the election. You know, it's this is our we're going to do this, and no one's going to tell us not." Um, so. You know, you can start to see how that digs in and it becomes part of the psyche. And, and that actually, I think, opens the door to, um, you know, and you and I discussed a couple of, you know, potential speaking topics. And one of them was tribalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, the end result of what we've, we've come to. Um, it's become so ideologically extreme that you look at it almost like a sporting event. You know, this is yeah. the Seahawks versus the, the Niners or something. Um, and, you know, these guys may be the best upstanding people outside of that game and you're, you're vilifying, you're calling them horrible names, you're calling their mom horrible names. And the thing is, that's that's kind of what we're seeing in politics as well. Um, a lack of understanding about what people bring to the table um, and how do we get past that tribalism. So I'm going to pose that question to you. How do we get past the tribalism? Yeah. Um, having conversations like this, meeting people who, are, who do not see eye to eye ideologically and having a conversation with them face to face. I know that's difficult in COVID, but... I think as soon as that conversation got moved away from face-to-face and onto Facebook, it became a lot easier to be tribal. And there's another thing that um, Leader Drazen said, I think it was probably off the podcast, but we were talking about this, how do we bring more moderates into the party? And she's like, you know, when, you, when we poll, we poll for, um, for how excited people are. For, um, and so it's hard to get excited about moderate issues. And that's something that I've tried. I've had to, I mean, running as a moderate, I say that freely. Something that I've had a hard time with is where do you, where do you find to get people excited about an idea when your ideas are kind of in the middle? You know, if you are an extremist and you can whip up that anger or that fear or those emotions on the, on the polar ends, you get those people. Those are the people who are going to knock doors for you. Those are people who are going to donate money. Those are the people who are going to, volunteer for your campaign they're gonna they're gonna make phone calls it's it's tough to as a moderate and it's it's become this zero sum where you have to win and winning is all that matters and then once you win the people have this entitlement of well i won so i can do whatever i want Mm -hmm. and i see that you may not agree with this but i see that with the state democrats and i see that with the federal republicans 
And you see that with the Neil Gorsuch Supreme Court nomination and now the Amy Comey Barrett, uh, where it was basically, we can do what we want. We want an election. We are able to do this. We are going to do it. And I see that with the state Democrats and cap and trade is we won the election. It doesn't matter what the Republicans or anybody else thinks. We're just, we're going to do it anyway. So I don't know. I, I think in the short term, the answer is a more balanced legislature, both at the state and federal level. Um, one party controlling all three levels of the, the House, Senate, and governor, especially in a super majority, I think really kind of exacerbates that. So would you support um, something akin to IP57? Let's say that the, uh, the world turned to the opposite direction on November 3rd for you and mm-hmm. you, you did get elected and I got elected and... <laughs> Would you support something like that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because it, it's it's just ideologically, voters should pick their legislators. Legislators should not pick their voters. You know, and Oregon is, is doesn't, lo- if you look at a map of Oregon and the electoral, it doesn't look gerrymandered. And be, not like someplace like, like Maryland, where you've got this like weird, snaky looking district. But if you think that three out of our five districts are a section of the portland metro area of our congressional districts mm-hmm. and you're like oh well those are three very democratic districts you know the pearl district is in the same district as astoria i mean tell me how those guys have some have the are, are similar in geography or culture or anything exactly you know and uh yeah absolutely would be would be for that and then have you looked into the uh, the ranked choice voting approach? I would see that as being integral to um, fixing what currently ails us as well in terms yeah. of, you know, turning a, uh, a primary uh, or a general uh, into a, a discussion of the issues like we're having here uh, as opposed to, you know, having to tack to the right or to the left. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I actually got a funny story about that. I was a, a delegate to the... ORP platform convention a year and a half ago. And one of the things that we, we as a party, not we as I, but we as a party added to the platform was a statement against ranked choice voting. And I wanted to stand up in front of everybody and be like, what are you doing? It, it can't get any worse for us <laughs> right now in the state <laughs> of Oregon. Why, like, if we implemented ranked choice voting, the only way we can go is up. There is like we we can't get any lower like at at a minimum okay you don't like it at a minimum just stay silent on the issue like why do we need to take a, an affirmative stance that we do not a, a, want to go for uh, ranked choice voting I was like you you guys are I don't know I just I, I it's just head scratcher I have no idea why we why the majority voted to put that in the platform you never really did uncover the rationale for that then or well I, I asked them the person who was uh, a proponent of it and she told me well she likes she likes the way things are. She thinks that the way things, like the way that we vote now is good, okay. I guess. And I, I can almost see someone from a far-right perspective seeing that as a way that the parties would have less power. And I think that that's one thing that, because you'd end up with more Green Party, you'd end up with more Libertarian, you you, you would not have R&D. Mm-hmm. You'd have these other potential third parties that would actually get nominated. And so... Maybe to a party insider who wanted to maintain the party structure the way it is, I could see that being a thing. But again, like 
things can't get much worse for the Republican Party in Oregon. Like, well, you know, but at the same time, I think that uh, from what I see from the DPO, uh, it's a similar reluctance uh, to to stand behind that. And that's why you have, uh, I think, a, a justifiably vocal Pacific Green Party saying, you know, this is what has to happen. We have a voice, too. But our ideas are never heard. They never make it onto the party platform because we really, we don't have the backing. We don't have the money. We can't break through the party politics to present our ideas and have them debated and then showing up uh, in, you know, in our candidates and having them defended. And, um, you know, the ranked choice voting would, I think, really open that up. It gets you out of that in-group thinking, which Mm -hmm. is attached to party politics, uh, and makes you open to the out-group. And that's where that that tribalism starts to, I think, fall apart. And I, I would see, you know, ideas from the right, the left, the middle, far left, far right, uh, suddenly becoming part of a mix that could, you know, propel our state. And again, going back to the Tom years, if we get past that ideology, we can do some special things in this state. We've done it before, but we've got to get past those things because it truly is tribal. You know, it does feel, it feels like a sporting event, uh, only maybe football, isn't it? Maybe it's, you know, <laughs> stakes are roller lot, derby. <laughs> stakes are much higher yeah. uh, than that. So I mentioned I'm running a Facebook ad. And one of the thing I've had, things I've had commented a lot of times, because I, I drew a circle around my district, which is Southwest Portland. So a lot of Democrats are seeing this. And so a lot of the comments are pretty negative. But one of the things I've been told a number of times by people who see the ad is, you should change your party registration. Like the Republican Party is so far, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're the party of Trump. You're enabling this guy uh, with the whole party needs to be destroyed and rebuilt. And why you, you random person on the internet need to change your party registration. Yeah. And you can't. And this, th- that's the reason why you can't. In this, in this part, in this system, if you want to be influential, you need to pick a party. Uh, even if I wanted to make a stand and register independent or register libertarian, those parties do not have the infrastructure. They don't have the voting base. They don't have the, like you, you can never win an election as one of those unless you are independently have name ID like mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders. And even he, who I think was elected as a Democrat and then switched to independent. I can't, I can't remember how that went, or if he was independent and then ran as a Democrat. Well, he runs for well, he, he runs, runs for president as a Democrat, yeah. but he's in he's a senator as an independent. Yes, at least he was. Maybe he switched. I don't I don't know. But my understanding is he's still yeah still independent. Boy, now, now I'm, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. Talking to one of my <laughs> one of my Democratic friends here, and he was he was frustrated with the Bernie the Bernie Bros and the Bernie Revelation. He's like, this guy isn't even a Democrat. He's like, he runs as a Democrat every four years, but the other three and a half years he's an independent he's not a democrat like get out of my primary go find somewhere else to go run for president <laughs> and so. yet the thing is he overlaps i think with you know the majority of democratic values and you know you mentioned at the beginning of this you know the percentages that you would say you're you know republican versus democrat versus independent you know for me i'm, I'm just north of 50 percent as a democrat that's why i decided to run mm-hmm. uh, as a democrat and also because of the you know the, the increased support it's just it's not possible to to move the needle here without having, you know, chosen either Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's reasonable uh, for a Democrat or Republican to have a mix. You know, so you throw in about 10% Libertarian because I do believe in personal responsibility. You throw mm-hmm. in some Progressive Green uh, and you throw in, um, you, know, the, you know, just the, uh, the Republican pragmatist in there too. And you come up with a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you have to be party pure to be an effective representative of that party. Uh, but you do have to, I think... 
tackle some of the uh, the power that the party has to guide that uh, and to dictate it. And I think that that's where both of us are at uh, in this situation. Yeah. yeah. Well, we are right at about 40 minutes. We usually go about 45. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to hit before we finish up? No, I'll just tell you that there's some really good wineries while you're down here if you want to. <laughs> I might need to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Don't get down here much. Um, no, I think we've covered everything that uh, I was hoping we could. And I really do appreciate you coming down here. Um, yeah, of course. I'm glad. Thanks for, for inviting me and, and being open to having this conversation. Like I said, I think this is how we bridge that gap is by having these conversations with people who don't, although I don't think we found a whole lot that we didn't agree on, except maybe the walkout. Yeah, that's but, he, he, but, like, <laughs> but I think that's the point is if you talk to somebody who, if you look at our resumes of, you know, I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, and but when we actually sit down and talk, actually have more in common than we have not in common. And I think that people will start to realize that if they just speak to people and have the empathy to an open-mindedness to speak to other people. I frustration with the Democrats, and that I know this happens on the other side too, but I, you know, see it from my perspective, is just a lot of unwillingness to engage. And especially in downtown Portland where everybody's a Democrat. And again, I was talking, those are the comments that I get on my Facebook page of people who just want to tear down the Republican Party and start over. I'm like, you guys have have never voted Republican in your life. You probably have never spoken to a Republican. You I mean 63 million people voted for Donald Trump. I did not vote for Donald Trump. I voted for Hillary. But 63 million people voted for him. If you believe the Republican Party is evil and is out to destroy the country, are 63 million people evil? Or maybe there's something you're not quite understanding. And maybe if you actually talk to a couple of these people, you would understand why they justified voting for Trump. Frustration. Yeah. I think is really what it boils down to. Frustration. I mean, there's, there's a number of... And we could get into all the different reasons because I've talked to people about all of them. <laughs> but there are reasons for voting the way you do that are, and, and if you stick to your own little bubble, you're going to paint everybody as everybody on the other side as whatever you choose to paint them as. And having conversations, I think, is the way that you break out of that bubble and remain open minded. So. I agree. And I think that uh, you and I are going to have some follow on conversations after November 3rd as well. So. I think so as yeah. well. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, we're going to end the podcast. You already actually answered the question of who your favorite Republican is, Tom McCall. So yeah. I don't need to ask that anymore. And yours? Uh, so I said, I said Abe Lincoln. Okay. And I think that part of the reason for that is he was the, the, the Republican who freed the slaves. And we're in such a racially charged environment now. I would love to see the Republican Party tack back to a place where we are the party that stands up for minorities and LGBT and women and we could have a whole other podcast on this, but <laughs> we don't make that effort anymore. And I, do, I don't believe that the Republican Party is racist in the sense the way that the, the media kind of plays it out, but we definitely aren't making an effort to reach out to these people. And so that's kind of, I, we, we, need to be, we need to be more affirmative and make more conscious steps to reach out to those communities. And I think that that was something that Abraham Lincoln, more than anyone else, <laughs> obviously, yes, <laughs> obviously, um, showed. Excellent. So yeah. I support that. Thanks. <laughs> All right, listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. 
If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.